morning. It's okay, you can talk in church. You don't have to sit there quiet. Uh, it's not a passive thing that we do when we come to worship God. It's very active. Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, and going into verse 1 of chapter 4. And of course, the title is, Whatever It Takes. We are living in a generation where if one little thing hurts somebody's feelings, they throw up their hands and they quit the ministry that God has placed them in. When I say ministry, do not define it as a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, or a deacon. Those are definitely ministry uh, positions. But your ministry is your everyday life. What you encounter on the job or at school, that is your ministry. God has you there for a reason. The interactions you have may be divine appointments that God has for you on that day so that you can speak truth into their lives. And sometimes it's not a matter of going to a long discourse, if you will, but just how we act and behave. Smiles are contagious. You smile to someone and actually they're going to smile back unless they're just having a bad day. And let me add to this that God never saves anybody for them just to sit around and do nothing. Our calling on our lives is much more than sitting on a pew on Sunday morning. We need to be active. And I think, i got to watch myself I don't chase this rabbit too far. Our service in America, church service overall in America, has become so consumerism-driven that we say, what's in it for us? Now, we need to provide ministries for different age groups and such, but it's not about what we can get out of it, but what we can bring to it, how we serve God through that local body. And if we're going to see change in the times in which you and I live, we're going to have to make up our mind to become involved and be committed to serving the Lord no matter what it takes. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to the context of our passage. First off, we must deal with or at least acknowledge there was the institution of slavery. The same thing is happening today, although we do not term it as slavery, we call it human trafficking, which is a huge problem. Coming right from El Paso and coming right across the United States, I-20 is a heavy corridor for that traffic. It's happening. We just don't hear it covered very much. Now Paul clearly sows the seeds of equality in this passage. That why it's impossible for the slaves to affect equality other than by hard work he or she would expect if they were a master, masters had a responsibility to treat their slaves fairly. And when Paul states to grant to your slaves justice and fairness, he is calling on a sense of morality, which in time spoke against the institution of slavery itself. Now let me just tell you, I'm going to jump ahead of myself, the parallel for us today as we look at this passage would be employer and employee. But my point being, we just can't skip over the fact that he uses the term slaves and masters. 
So when you, you approach any text, you have to look at what it meant in that day, in that context, and then look for the eternal truth or principles you can pull out that apply across eternity. Now, treating others the way you want to be treated would mean the release of the slaves, but the Roman Empire was not ready to hear that message. This is my opinion. I would think Paul would have a problem with coming out preaching against it so hard against the institution of slavery because it would mess up or deter the message of the gospel. Here's what I mean. There should be laws, all right? But laws never change anybody's heart. What only changes the human heart is the gospel. So Paul would say, if you want things to change in any institution, be it government, school, whatever you're talking about, you need to go after those individuals, give them the gospel, let God change the heart is the point. Uh, I came across this illustration about glory in the grind. It states that the lives of slaves in the Roman Empire was not easy. They were regarded as things, and they had no rights. Some had good masters and challenging work, while others were given menial tasks to perform, and they worked long hours with no rest. However, as Christians, they could catch a glimpse of glory in the grind. Whether slaves or masters, they could do their work with dignity. They were Christ's servants, and they represented Him in the marketplace and in the home. Each worked for his master, Jesus Christ, and labored for a commendation that would ultimately come from him. Now, someone captured the heart of this truth when he observed, quote, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that the host of heaven will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did a job well. Now, your work may be tedious. You may have an employer who doesn't appreciate you or pay you what you're worth. You may want to quit, but you are working for Christ. Do your daily work so that your master in heaven can one day say to you, good job, well done. H.W. Robinson. So with that in mind, as we look at the text, the context of the text, and think of application today, are you willing to do whatever it takes? Regardless of your circumstances or situations. That decision has to be made here and now, not so you're out in the middle of something. You have to decide now. Let me just put one more qualifier on this before we turn our attention to the text. You cannot do this without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. Once again, I remind you, we are not called to live natural lives, but supernatural lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. With that in mind, let's look at our text. Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Slaves, and all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Pay very close attention how these words are, are put out. Obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartedly, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. 
It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Going back to the beginning of our passage, he tells slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Notice the word used there. It's the word obey, not the word submit. They were to obey their masters in everything, just as the children were instructed, just a few verses above that, to obey their parents in all things. They had a complete responsibility to their masters. But look how he describes the masters. Masters on earth. Literally, that's according to the flesh. This is a reminder that there's an ultimate master who's reigning both over the slave and the master. Slaves of every age have rested their hopes on justice on that truth. Heaven is a vital, hope-producing focus of life. This is what gives the slaves hope. That's what gives us hope, knowing there is a master, an ultimate master who reigns over everything. And by the way, if you don't know who I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Lord of all, Jesus Christ. He says, because of that, because you have a master who reigns over both, you are to obey them in everything. And look what he says, not with external service or literally eye service, but with sincerity of heart. There is a tendency for them to only work when the master is watching, thereby easing their situation or may qualify them for a favor. Now, We do that sometimes at work, don't we? When the boss shows up, man, we got to get to work. Don't want to see the boss sitting around. There's a situation at work that when, back when Robert Crandall was our CEO of American, when he came to the airport, my Lord, you'd have so much help, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. But a lot of times we had heavy trips coming in and we're just working it. It doesn't matter who's on that airplane, the president, whoever. I am to do my work as to the Lord, not for my employer. But in this case, he's telling the slaves, don't just do it for your earthly master. Remember who you're truly working for. They're all seeing heavenly masters searches the motivations of the heart. Are we just trying to please that man? Are we doing everything that we can to please God? Because he sees all and knows all and even knows the intentions of our hearts. This reminds me of a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Daniel's out looking, excuse me, Samuel's out looking for the next king of Israel. He goes to Jesse's house. Jesse was the father of David and all these guys. Gentlemen, his sons walk by. Samuel says, surely this must be God's man. Look, man, he's big. He has that, you know, just that glance about him. He's tall. He looks like he's strong. He'd be a great king. But the Lord says to Samuel, verse 7, or 1 Samuel chapter 16, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the reason that's important because not only are they to serve 
not with just external service or literally eye service, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing or reverence of the Lord. The idea is that God is watching. And we're professing to be Christians. We need to do the job to the best of our ability. And all of life is to be lived with that conscious realization that God is always watching us. It does not matter what our circumstance is. And that's what he's telling the slaves. Say, even when your master's not looking, you're working for God, not necessarily for your master. And how you work reflects upon what you think of God and your relationship with God. For example, I need to flesh this out just a little more. If I'm at work, and when a plane comes on the leading line, I'm the last one to walk out, first one to walk away, I don't do my job, my crew chief Tossie has to get on to me, how does that speak about me being a Christian? Well, he claims to be a Christian, but he don't want to do his job. He just loves off all the time. I have to remember that my witness of who God is is a part of everything that I do, no matter how menial it may seem. Yes, even the way I drive reflects upon my relationship with God. Now, I have to admit, oh, man, you're preaching. This really hits me upside the head sometimes. You know that? Speeding, cutting off people, making remarks. You guys have been there too. You know, back when Dr. Ken Hiffel was president of Southwestern Seminary some years ago, before chapel service started, he told us as students, he said, look, you need to be careful coming through that school zone. There's a school zone right before you get to Southwestern there on the left-hand side as you're coming from I-30. Excuse me, I-35. Never mind. And as you go through there, you know, there's a school sign, uh, speed limit 20. And, of course, we have these nice little parking decals that say Southwestern on it. The police chief wrote him a letter saying, you need to tell your students to slow down. We know who they are because of that sticker on the back of their car. Hurry up! Get out of my way! I'm late for class! That reflected upon not only Southwest and Syria, but it reflected upon us as believers. And I know this really, first of all, if your toes are getting stomped on, God's not concerned about your toes, He's concerned about your heart. And He's concerned about our witness to the world. We don't want to discredit our witness any form or fashion. And knowing that God sees everything, remind me of Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. In other words, no matter how high I may go, how may low I may go here on earth, no matter where I go to try to hide from God, I can't. He's always there. There's no way you can escape His presence. Look at this. He goes on to say, If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. I turn off all the lights. You ever notice how certain businesses are only open at night? Just keep that in mind. Somehow we think that the darkness is going to hide us. That God can't see us if we're in the dark. But according to the psalm, he says, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. There is nowhere we can escape from God's presence. And that's a comfort, right? No matter what we're going through, God is there. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. But 
it's also a little concerning, maybe even a little frightening to know there's nowhere I can go that God's not there. And nothing I can do that God will not see. There is nothing I won't think in my heart that God doesn't know already. Does that scare you a little bit? I, I said this before. How would you like your name to come up on the screen? By the way, we're live streaming right now. And whatever you're thinking at this moment, this flashes across that screen and goes across in there for the whole world to see. Would that be embarrassing? Uh, I wonder what, what, how many people say, I wish Tim would hurry up because I'm hungry. I'm going to go to lunch. <laughs> you know why I say that? I'm guilty of thinking that same thing in seminary. I'm no better than you are. I'm still a sinner saved by grace is the point. Turn our attention back to the text. He says, do you work heartily or enthusiastically as for the Lord? Literally, when it says with all your heart, in, in the Greek it's saying from the soul. So even when working for someone else, this needs to be heartfelt. Soul stresses stresses the life principle and expended energy rather than just a pure choice that comes from the heart. Now, we need to make a pure choice from our heart and decide the word, but when we actually work, it takes energy. What are you expending your energy to do? Your, your blood, sweat, and tears, as we say. That, that soul, what are you putting your soul into? It's easy to say, yes, I decide to do this, and yes, I'm going to decide to do that, and we're speaking, hopefully making a pure choice from our heart, but it doesn't really make any difference until we go out and put it in action. See, the point is that the Lord concerns Himself with how we spend our energy and our time and the choices that are made because He's the master overall. He sees the choices that we make, the motivations behind it, but then also our work. Where do we spend our time, our energy at? So when we work, we need to be enthusiastically working for God. Is it hard to get really pumped up to go to work on Monday morning? <laughs> I get one amen. <laughs> it's hard. Because we're living in a world that goes directly opposed to what God's Word says. Almost in every facet of life. When we get up, we need to put that full armor of God on, as Ephesians tells us to do, as we go out. Because the devil is going to do everything he can to trip you up. We have to be ready. As I said before, the war has been won, but we face a battle every day. You may be the only Jesus that your co-workers see. And I speak from experience. You never know what kind of difference that God's making in someone's life by what you say and what you do. And sometimes it will come out of left field. You'll never see it coming. He says, why should we do that? Why should you work hardly as for the Lord? Because he says, look, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance. Now let's go back to our context. He's speaking to masters of slaves. This context, he's addressing the slaves at the moment. And he's telling them about inheritance. Now what do slaves have to look forward to? Very little on this earth. Perhaps they received some rewards for good work, but there was no inheritance. And Paul is encouraging them that their rewards were spiritual. Such rewards cannot be taken away. The real master would pay them what really matters. This inheritance. The reward inheritance involves the presence of the Lord Himself. Thus the motive was faithfulness to the Lord in the circumstances of life. 
And as Christians, their concerns of heaven were to occupy their thoughts and energy while on this earth. Remember what awaits you, our reward. We're no different though, is it? We get through life circumstances sometimes because we remember the reward that's awaiting us, the inheritance that we're promised. I had to do a funeral this past Wednesday. Tammy's grandmother was 93 years old, faithful to God. No matter how hard that, it was hard, it was difficult. We grieve, and 1 Thessalonians tells us to grieve as those, don't grieve as those with no hope. doesn't tell us not to grieve, but we, through our grieving, through our pain, and through our suffering, we can remember the inheritance that we're promised. That as hard as that is, and as permanent that separation that we feel hurts, we know that one day we will see them again. That's what gets us through that inheritance. As 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm no longer the Tim I used to be. I'm a new creation, a new creature, because I've given my life to Christ. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's all because of His great mercy. We are born again to this living hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not some type of fable or some type of mystic thing we believe in. It's a historical fact that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Bodily raised from the dead. And because He's been raised from the dead, guess what? That means we're going to be raised from the dead one day. Look what He says, to an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's not like anything we can receive on earth because here on earth things do rust, things do decay. But he's saying this inheritance that we have is imperishable. It's undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. It can't be touched by anybody. It's guarded by God himself in heaven. Because he goes on to say, you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that salvation he's talking about is the consummation that we're all changing in the twinkling of an eye and we're going to be with the Lord. Those who have fallen asleep are in his presence now. Fallen asleep is euthanism, meaning those who've passed away in Christ. But one day, dear beloved, that trumpet's going to blow. And he will descend and bring with him all those who have passed away before us. And then we who are alive will be changed in a twinkling of an eye and meet with him in the air. And there will be for the Lord for all eternity. Wow. Woo, what a day that's going to be, huh? That's what gets us through this daily grind. We should be concerned. And we truly love people then the concern for the eternal destiny must be what's driving us. Look, I didn't do anything to earn it. It was a gift, really given. Someone told me about it. For 33 years of my life, I heard about it and didn't do anything with it. Until one day, on a Wednesday night, it hit me like a tongue of bricks. Everything just clicked. And my life has not been the same since. Look what he says. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Do you see anything missing in that statement? The word Jesus? 
Lord Christ. Lord talks of him being sovereign. Christ is referring to his messianic work. The slaves were to be conscious of their salvation. It came from the same one who is their master. He is our Lord and Savior. You can't distinguish the both. Now listen to me. If he cared enough to save you, he cares enough to take care of all your needs. Do you ever think about that? If Jesus loved you, loves you enough to take care of your eternal destiny, sins covered, new nature, a new creation in Christ, and he is giving you that freedom from sin and from death, if he cared enough to do that, then surely he cares enough to meet your needs every day. So we have a problem sometimes. We get our wants mixed up with our needs. But God will meet us every day. Meet our needs every day because he cares about us. His work of salvation was total redemption. The redeemer they serve is also sovereign. Now put yourself in the context of the slaves. Could Christ deliver them from that state of being in slavery and free them from bondage? Of course he could. But perhaps that's not his plan. After all, he's sovereign. But even though he could deliver them in time, he would deliver them in eternity. In other words, God may never take you out of your circumstance or situation you may have now, but dearly beloved, there's a day coming when he will deliver us from everything will be delivered from the effects of sin. Now, as believers, we have forgiveness of sin, but imagine sin being gone, completely eradicated. What in the world does that look like? I mean, think about it. There'll be no gossip, no jealousy, no backbiting, no sickness, no death. What does that look like? I have no idea. But I'm so looking forward to it. And he's reminding them, even though you're slaves, you're a Christian and you're really serving the Lord. Different context. I'm talking about, about to talk about, but it's a definitely an application of the text. Dearly beloved, no matter what you find yourselves doing, you are serving God. No matter how menial that task may seem to be, you're still serving God through that as a believer. He says next in the text, he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he has done. Now that could be a, a source of comfort for the slaves, right? Hey, these masters who mistreat us will stand before judgment one day. Their hope of vindication lays in the hands of God. God sees and judges according to perfect justice. As a side note, when we say that God judges according to perfect justice, once we put our sense of fairness and justice on God, we are making an idol in our head. Because God's sense of fairness and justice far exceeds ours. And look what he says. He, he judges without partiality, no favoritism, comfort in knowing that Unjust and unbelieving masters would face judgment. We won't face, as believers, the great right throne judgment, but we'll still be giving account for how we lived our lives. There's no escaping that. 
God's righteousness demands that any injustice needs to be punished. And just because he may not punish right now, don't escape. I mean, don't think that because he hasn't done it now, he never will. It reminds me of what Jesus told them back in the Gospels. Remember Noah? Remember the story of Noah? How long did it take Noah to build that ark? Anybody know? Around 100 years or so. No one had seen rain at that point. <laughs> I wonder if his sons ever looked at each other. So I think dad's kind of lost it. We've been building this thing. Things, so what is this thing? And the whole time he was building it, he was warning the people, right? Of God's judgment. And then when they least expected it, the floodgates of heaven opened up, and he said the ground opened up, and the water came up from the ground. If you notice in that story, it says God shut the door to the ark. And if you look at the dimensions of the ark, there was more than enough room to put more people on that thing. But no one would repent. God shut the door. And can you imagine those people standing outside, the, the water coming up to their knees and the rain falling down? Can you hear them just pounding on the door? Hey, let us in! As Noah saying, hey, I didn't shut the door and I can't open it. It came. And for over 2,000 years, preachers like myself have stood in the pulpit faithfully, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, talking about the second coming of Christ. And people go, well, everything just continues on. Where is the second coming at? Look, it's coming. Just like it did to those people back in the Old Testament with the flood. It's coming. The thing is, are you ready or not? And His justice is without partiality. There's no favoritism with God. He's reminding the slaves that, yes, your lot in life, you have to be willing to serve God regardless of your circumstances. I can't think of any more dire circumstances to be a slave. Can you imagine? But then he turns his attention in chapter 4, verse 1, to the masters. Grant or provide your slaves justice and fairness. The slaves' basic needs were to be met in keeping with the value of human life, time, and effort. If they did that, that would radically change their attitude towards the slaves and the slaves' attitude towards their masters. They were to do that. Why? Knowing that you too, talking to the masters, have a master in heaven. A reminder to the masters that they too were slaves. The heavenly master rules and reigns over all. He is the all-seeing, sovereign, and just master. Thus, in reality, earthly masters were slaves and were to treat their slaves in the same way they would be treated. Now, if you follow that logic out, what would that lead to? It would lead for freedom from everybody. Our theology would dictate that our ethical behavior, we need to release these slaves because we need to treat them as we like to be treated because we too are slaves to Christ. We follow Christ. And we're His slaves. As I said earlier, in contemporary life, the most probable parallel of this text is the workplace. And the following principles are found within this text. The primary concern is the Christian's response to life situations. If your circumstances and situation cannot be changed, we must respond with a sense of responsibility to God who has chosen not to alter or change or modify your circumstances. So regardless of where you find yourself in your lot of life, we must respond to God and serve Him regardless. See, here in America, we come to God saying, God, I'll serve you if you do this, this, and this. 
I want to serve you here at Texas. I want to serve a church of white people. I don't want to go anywhere overseas. I want to keep my job. Have all these lists. Now, God, if you just sign off on this, we're good to go. That's how God approaches. God says, Tim, you follow me regardless where I send you. And that's how you come to me and you serve me. It's that surrender we, we, we sing about in that song, I Surrender All. There's the theology of work. That genuine service and honest vocation bring honor, honors to God. He watches the stewardship of our time, our life, and energy. Work is honorable even if the profits do not occur to the worker. Shelfish gain should not affect work. We work in response to God. And we also see the equality and dignity of all persons in this text. Masters had a master, the master. Slaves had freedom when they realized that their laborers were not confined to this life or to the coffers of their earthly masters. Individuals are judges by their personal response to the Lord. It's all about that individual response. And slaves had that freedom when they realized, what I'm doing here on earth, God will recognize and reward me for my faithful service. I believe there was a song that came out some years ago, and the title escapes my memory at the time, but talking about how the little things here on earth may go unnoticed, but heaven will shout it out. You may not have a great big name here on earth. You may never be famous, but whatever you do for the Lord will never go in vain. No matter what you do for the Lord, that work is never, never, never in vain. You ever heard that song, Thank You for Serving the Lord, and the artist escapes me now? We like to sing about the mansions and the street of gold. Of course, the point of all that, what good is gold when you're standing in front of God? Oh God, gold. How can you even put a, put a price tag on it? I'm sorry, who cares about the gold? Here's God right here. But I think our reward is going to be those relationships. I wonder if people will come up to you and say, you may not know me and but I was in your Sunday school class, or I attended VBS. And because of your witness, I'm here. Now, believe it or not, I went to church when I was a little boy. I was the cut-up. I was the one constantly, you know, the ones that always get your attention a lot, that was me. I'm not going much detail other than that. And some of those ladies and gentlemen who kept that faithful witness to me. It's because of their witness I'm here. Can you imagine their surprise when you tell them he's my pastor? He's your what? That guy? My point being, ladies, we never know the impact that we're making on this side of heaven. If we're cleaning the church, if we're teaching, if whatever we're doing, if we have that mentality that we're serving God through that, now, how menial or tedious it may be, there's rewards to that. God's not going to He's not going to leave that unnoticed. He's going to tell you, "Well done, my good and faithful servant." Now, to conclude this, let's bring in verses 18 through 21 as well, which talks about the family and their relationships, so we get a more comprehensive picture. 
And I'm going to begin with an article that was written in the Wall Street Journal back in December of 1999 by a woman named Sue Schellenbarger. She's a working family columnist that wrote this, like I said, back in December of 1999. In that article, she states that she encountered hundreds of people who, quote, essentially live for the future, taking refuge in visions of a relaxed, rewarding personal and family life somewhere down the road. And she calls that the tomorrow trap. And she would define the tomorrow trap as a mirage that people chase while in reality they are burying themselves in work and other pursuits. Which a retired, from, a retired uh, general from the Air Force, D.C. McCaslin, said, the only way to escape that tomorrow trap is to, quote, to begin following God's guidelines in our work and in our family relationships today, end of quote. Now, we are to prepare for the future and plan for the future, but the The point is, we get so busy in our daily routine, constantly working towards retirement and the easy life, that we miss so many opportunities along the way. My father-in-law and mother-in-law, Ronnie and Sandra, and my mama and my stepfather, who all four of them have passed away now, spoke to me when Brooke was just a wee bit thing, just a tiny little thing. Enjoy this time because we'll go back super fast. And I remember it seemed to be forever for them to grow up. But once they hit first grade, time went like that. Now I look back on all that time and go, where did it all go? And my point being, we used to be so focused on the, you know, we need to be prepared for our eternity, but we can be so focused that we miss all the opportunities around us. Or someone say we can be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. That time I had with my girls is gone. They're not little anymore, and they remind me of that sometimes. Dad, I'm not a little girl anymore. I'm an adult. Well, you'll always be my little girl to me. We're not getting into all that right now. You know what I'm saying? Yes, we need to have one eye looking for Christ to come, but at the same time, don't miss the opportunities that come our way. When we work as to the Lord, that will open up opportunities. I'll go to you, Roger, how can you work with this boss? You always seem to have a good attitude no matter what he says. What is, what's going on with you? What, where's that peace come from? And guess what that does, brother? Opens up that opportunity to present the gospel. And see, people may not believe the way you do about Jesus, but they can never, as we said in Sunday school, discredit your story, your personal experience, how Jesus has made a change in your life. So going back first circle, he was talking to slaves and masters, but there's principles here that we can put towards employee and employers. Because if you take care of the vertical relationship with God, the horizontal relationship with each other will take care of itself. So, I ask again, are you willing to do whatever it takes, regardless of your circumstances, and situations. Do you realize in history there have been times that slaves had led their masters to salvation? You don't hear too many stories like that told, but it did happen. Stories of masters letting their slaves go off and preach to one another. That witness convicted some of their masters. Well, they stayed with their master, but the master started paying them and treating them differently. I guess it boils down to this, doesn't it? God is looking for obedience, not just good intentions. 
was it said the road the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? We can make all the decisions we want, and we should, from the heart. But we have to be willing to put that in action. When you start looking across the board, the United States, here, in, here in the United States, even here in Texas, the amount of people who don't know Christ is staggering. It can be so overwhelming. Only one out of every ten people ever share their faith with Christ. Why is that? I will do the best I can when preaching and being your pastor, but I can't do it alone. You have a ministry a place that God's called you to, even in the home taking care of those children, how you talk to them, how you discipline them, how you interact with them, will forever change their lives. And think, think about the influence you have. It, it's almost scary when you stop and think about it. And that could be a parent, that could be a teacher. Even those coming to church and being faithful at church, kids are watching you. It's not just the kids. Some other adults are watching you as well how you handle things. And I'm telling you, when you least expect us sometimes, I will open up an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. An opportunity to, to serve and love and tell them about Christ. This message is encouraging, but it's also challenging, isn't it? Because this is a day by day I'm reminded of the hymn that says, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you. And we're talking about all this, and if you make decisions, and that's great, we should. Remember, we have an enemy now. Even now, it's probably whispering to you, you can't do that. Don't even try. Just, just, be, just don't worry about it. That's That's the pastor's job. Let him deal with that. That's the deacon's job. That's a Sunday school teacher's job. Don't listen to that lie. Whatever you do, do it with your whole heart as for the Lord. It's a key verse in that whole text. And that's application across the board. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we thank You for the gift of each other. Father, continue to move. Speak to our hearts. And may we respond in obedience to You. Maybe it's a call to give our lives to Christ for the very first time. May we respond to that. If it's a, a call to a deeper walk with You, Father, may we be obedient to that. If it's a call about joining us here as a local body of Christ, may we honor that as well. Whatever the call is that You're placing on our heart, may we not walk out of here or do we, until we do business with You. 
We thank you and we praise you for who you are. But most of all, we thank you for the precious gift of your son. His name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?